It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson is here. We're going to talk about two things, actually a lot of security news, but uh, an update on Heartbleed, Heartbleed Part 2, and the audit uh, for uh, the TrueCrypt app, which we've long time strongly recommended, is finally in. And there are some surprising issues. Stay tuned. Security Now is next. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C A C H E F L Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 451, recorded April 15th, 2014. True Crypt and Heartbleed Part 2. Security Now is brought to you by IT Pro TV. Are you looking to upgrade your IT skills or prepare for certification? IT Pro TV offers engaging, informative tutorials streamed to your Roku, computer, or mobile device. For 30% off the lifetime of your account, go to itpro.tv slash security now and use the code SN30. And by ShareFile. Enhance your workflow. Send files of almost any size easily and securely with ShareFile from Citrix. Try ShareFile today for a 30-day free trial. Go to sharefile.com, click the microphone, and enter security now. And by Carbonite. Whether you have one computer at home or several at your small business, Carbonite backs up your files to the cloud automatically and continually. Plus, access all your files anytime, anywhere with a free app. Start your free trial at Carbonite.com. No credit card required. Use the offer code SECURITYNOW and you'll get two bonus months with purchase. It's time for Security Now, the show where we cover your uh, security and privacy with this guy right here, the big-handed Steve Gibson, the explainer-in-chief. I don't, you know, I don't know if you realize, but your hand, because of where the camera is, your yeah. hand looks bigger than your head. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Hi, Steve. <laughs> Hello, Leo. Welcome back. I feel like we were just here. We, we ought were. to let people know that uh, you did have me back on for a Part two of the continuing series of how did this happen? What a great! Uh, you told some great stories about being kicked out of the Boy Scouts, about yeah. getting into the artificial intelligence labs at Stanford as a teenager. Things that just really I had I've known you for years and had no idea. So it's a great must listen to triangulation uh, from yesterday, and I thank you for uh, for doing that. And and of course the reason we did it is because we got we didn't get very far in your life story. The first time, and we got less far. I think we went backwards. <laughs> we went backwards and covered some, yes, previous things, which you know, for <laughs> for some mention. But I you guess. know, by the time we're done with this series, which may be ten or eleven episodes, you won't have to write a biography. This will be your biography. You know, the story of well, Steve. And we also spend a lot of time not talking about me, but talking about just industry stuff. Right. And from the feedback that I saw. In, in Twitter, people really enjoyed just yeah. you and me talking about other stuff. So, well, yeah. and of course, Heartbleed was one of those uh, things, and I think it'll be a bit of a topic again today. Well, yeah. Um, you know, it's funny because when I wrote the description in the email that I sent you and Elaine, which Elaine puts into the the transcript, I, I, ba I basically said, well, two things happened this week. Almost nothing other than Heartbleed, but that almost was taken up by TrueCrypt, whose first audit results came back. So we're going to talk about the phase one audit complete um, 
of TrueCrypt with some detail, some interesting results and what we learned from it. And there is a lot to learn really about some of the things about the open source movement that you and I are going to talk about, both in the context of TrueCrypt and then again in with OpenSSL and Heartbleed. Then, of course, we've got to talk about everything that happened since we essentially were on the leading edge of the breaking news one week ago. And, oh, there's an interesting timeline that uh, one reporter put together that was published in the Sydney Morning Herald, of all places, showing how long before the world knew it was actually known by, like, people at Google. Ooh, that's not Turns good. out it, yeah. it was back in March. Wow. Uh, yeah. Wow, that's a and, month. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, it wasn't. It, well, no, no, no. It wasn't by any means many. It, it wasn't a long time. But, you know, there was the wheels were turning behind the scenes with people promising each other not to mention it until this process could be managed. Um, so we have all of that follow up to talk about. And I had intended initially to do some Q&A, but I just don't think we're going to have time. So we're going to put the Q&A to... Next week, where we'll, we'll we'll do a catch up. There was a ton of email in the mailbag, and so certainly some pressure to get some some questions from our listeners answered, which we'll do next week. And then the week after, I currently have slated to, to although again, that's always subject to you know what the world brings us, um, to talk about what I call the the revocation revelation, which is something I learned about. How how little what essentially how broken one part of the whole certificate authority system is, um, which is really not been getting much attention. Everybody knows about it b- behind the scenes. Unfortunately, no one's really caring too much about it because users don't know, and so um, I've actually created another resource at GRC. Um, and I, I could talk about it next week in advance of the following week's podcast, but or people can just look under services on the main menu and you'll see something about certificate revocation. And if you're curious, go take a look there. You'll you'll find uh, that I've been busy in this last week. So lots happening today. Uh, and, you know, we've got the next few weeks all planned out. Well, I'm, I, you know, this is good. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll get to a Q&A eventually. I don't think that's uh, going to be a big problem. I um, always do. Yeah. Before we uh, go on, though, I better uh, talk a little bit about uh, one of our sponsors. Tim and Don were out here uh, this week from IT Pro TV. And I just, you know, uh, we had a great conversation about what they're doing at, at IT Pro TV. It's itpro.tv slash security now if you want to take a look the the idea is they you know they started their company started training people uh to get the certs in it uh you know all the stuff that uh you you need if you want to get a better job in it but they realized after watching tech tv and seeing what we're doing at twit and other places that there might be a better way and i think one of the things i'd really love it i, I people you know they think uh, there are a couple of ways to get these certs the a plus the the Net Plus, the Security Plus, the Microsoft MCSA and MCSE search, the Cisco search, the ISC squared search. Those are the new security search. People go, well, I can go to a technical school and spend ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars to get that uh, that training, or, or I can buy materials and learn it on my own. Both ways are tough and expensive. They've come up with a way that is so affordable, 
and, and so easy and so painless that I think people might not give them enough credit for uh, what it is. They And by the way, they now have a new free uh, uh, solution as well. And we talked a little bit about that, the idea that to get people uh, to understand what they're up to, they, they need to offer some, some free stuff. And they do. And it's great. Uh, there's a new, uh, by the way, all new website you've probably seen, including, oh, I love this. So first of all, I, what is IT Pro TV? It's it's like watching Twit, only you get all of the knowledge you need to pass those certificate exams. It's fun. They have live on-air programming. In fact, I can see from the red dot on the site they're they're on-air live right now. Um, they can when they're when they're live, you can join the chat room. You can ask questions. It's totally interactive. Um, it looks like it looks like they're doing server management uh, right now. Uh, it's uh, so it's engaging. You can put it. They have a Roku app. You can put it on your big screen. You can watch it on your tablet, your laptop, your phone. You can learn basically painlessly as you go. And their flat rate pricing, fifty seven dollars a month or five hundred seventy dollars for a whole year, is not only really affordable. It means you can. It's all you can eat. So you can learn as fast as you can or as slowly as you can if you're like me. And you sometimes it takes a little while to absorb this stuff. They do have a special offer for Twit fans. So. Uh, so keep listening. Among other things, they now have a virtual sandbox machine lab. You might say, well, I would like the lab that, you know, well, you can do it. Hands-on practice and learning, you can within seconds be running server and four clients or whatever whatever is appropriate. Uh, this is part of the deal, part of the subscription. Measure up practice exams are included with your subscription. That's a $79 value. So you've got practice exams. You've got the lab. You don't. Ha- you could. You do not have to even be running Windows to do this stuff. Um, you can also download episodes if you're an annual subscriber. Audio only MP3s, so you can listen in the car. This is. Uh, this, they told me their most requ- requested feature, and they really listen to their subscribers. They really try to give you exactly what you need. I think IT Pro TV is fantastic, and I think you will too. Visit itpro.tv slash security now and then use the offer code SN30 for 30% off for the lifetime of your account. Now it's $40 a month or $400 for the entire year. itpro.tv slash security now. Take the guided tours. You'll be able to see a lot more about what IT Pro offers. Uh, you can also uh, watch the free content, the live streaming and all of that. IT Pro TV. Really, I just, I want to spread the word. Um, uh, th- they're putting new uh, new courses up every single day, about 20 courses a week. This is a great way to learn. I know a lot of people listen to Security Now because they want to learn. Uh, but if you're ready to take those exams, get those certifications, you want to work in IT, this is a really good way to do it um tomorrow comp tsa plus uh and they're going to do then mcsa windows 8 mcsa windows server comp tia advanced they're doing such great stuff itpro.tv slash security now and use the code sn30 <laughs> all right Stephen. let's uh let's get into the uh, meat of the matter as they say okay so first true crypt um I know this is on the radar of our listeners because I got a tweet flood uh, as this began. Well, you you talked about the In fact, you promoted that they were trying to raise money to do this audit. Yes. And and in fact, the site is truecryptauditedyet.com has been 
tracking this for some number of months. And Matthew Green, the professor of um, he, he's a research professor focusing on cryptology at Johns Hopkins. Uh, he's been one of the people organizing this. They've created a a, a, a site called OpenCryptoAudit.com, which is sort of the it's the umbrella site for all of sort of what we're beginning to understand we need to do uh, d- couldn't be more highlighted than what we've just gone through in this past week with the open SSL heartbleed problem because you know here was open source code that had been sitting there for a couple of years and yeah it would have sure been nice to have if not an audit of the entire package which apparently is almost beyond auditing uh, for <laughs> reasons we'll be discussing later um, just someone really looking at any changes being made because, you know, it's been noted that that um, a, a change was apparently made, uh, you know, apparently on New Year's Eve and it was, you know, given an eyeball by a, another developer who said, yeah, that looks fine. And it got committed into the project and became part of OpenSSL. We'll be talking about that more in a second. So where we are with TrueCrypt is that phase one's results are available. Um, I've got a link in the show notes. Um, and and I've, I've seen people saying, well, where are these show notes you talk about? Well, first of all, I just tweeted them. I always tweet them every week. So if you're not on Twitter, well, you can still look at twitter.com slash SGGRC. And you will find my feed and my link to the show notes, which which is what Leo's looking at, I'm looking at, and they're available. They're all they will also be on the Security Now page as soon as the the transcripts and audio is available. We pull all that together. So that's there every week. So, you know, I am putting links in the notes and you know, you obviously you can find these things if you just Google around, but I make them as easy as I can for you. So um, there is a, I think it's the 32-page PDF uh, from a group called iSecurity, iSec. They called it their final open crypto audit project, TrueCrypt Security Assessment. And I am very impressed with the work they did. However, no one should believe that this is an audit of TrueCrypt. What it was is a very circumscribed audit of only two pieces of TrueCrypt, specifically the bootloading process and the Windows kernel driver and nothing else. So there's much more to be done. And this highlights one of the problems with having an independent group come in and audit code. And that is, it's really hard. I mean, it is hard and time-consuming to do this really well. So what these guys did, the reason I'm so impressed, is what they did, it looks like from all the evidence, they did really well. But given given a couple months to do this, what they, you know, the, the, the size in terms of the whole project of what they did was still very small, which is to say for this to be useful, it has to be in-depth. But in-depth 
analysis of somebody else's code where you're where you're looking where you're scrutinizing it at a at a level which the coders themselves didn't scrutinize where for example these guys note that some integers are treated as signed in some places and unsigned in others well it works but they're noting you know that's really not cool because there could be side effects from that when the high bit ever if the high bit were ever to get set that makes it look like a negative value and then your equality checks are not going to do the right thing and it's probably the case that these particular values you know are small enumerations they, they're just never gonna have the high bit set in the integer but still it just sort of demonstrates uh, you know not the kind of integrity you would like to have in a piece of software that we're now depending upon to the degree we are. But Matt Green, looking at the audit results, said, he was quoted saying, uh, the results don't panic me. I think the code quality is not as high as it should be. But on the other hand, nothing terrible is in there. So that's reassuring. Now, now, again, that's of what they've looked at so far, which is a small piece. It's just the bootloader and the Windows kernel driver. So, so to give you some, some sense for this, the, this 32-page PDF has a summary of findings. And they wrote, during this engagement, the ISEC team identified 11 issues in the assessed areas, meaning just those two, bootloading and the kernel driver. And I, sh I should mention that those were looked at specifically because the question was, if there was some back doors, if there was something really bad, the kind of thing that would panic Matt, that's probably where they would be, which is not to say there couldn't also be, for example, they, they specifically disclaimed that they didn't look at the random number generator. And well, we know how crucial that is. So no one has looked at that yet. This hasn't looked at that yet. This is specifically to say, you know, if, if a backdoor existed, we want to make sure it's not in the bootloader or the Windows kernel driver. So they can now very definitively say nothing malicious was found as a result of a very careful analysis of all of that code, yet none of the rest of it, which is way the majority. So ISEC says of these 11 issues, four issues were medium severity, and I'll give you some, some examples of those in a second, and another four low severity, with an additional three issues having informational severity, meaning just sort of uh, defense in depth. What, you know, was there, were, were there enough layers of security? So just sort of talking about the architectural side. ISEC wrote, overall, the source code for both the bootloader and the Windows kernel driver did not meet expected standards for secure code. Hmm. And, and let me, I'm going to pause again and say, now remember that unfortunately, what's happened is, Something that just sort of started getting coded by some guys who thought it would be useful way before BitLocker came along and like Microsoft gave us their implementation. It's like, let's, you know, do 
a whole drive encryption thing for Windows. So they just sort of sat down, started writing some code. I mean, if they had known then what they know now, their original coding style may have been different. They, it may have, you know, on the other hand, it may have never gotten off the ground if all of this was imposed on them from day one. So, so, and it's also been noted, I, I was reading a, a, a lengthy blog by Dan Kaminsky who wrote, who responded, and we'll talk about this later, about, about the heart bleed problem that, I mean, what a, what a catastrophe open SSL everyone agrees is in terms of its code. It, it's just a, it's a horrible mess because it just sort of grew organically. And unfortunately, now the whole world uses it. Similarly, now we all wish TrueCrypt were something more than it is. But, you know, it is what it is. It, no one has to pay for it. It's free. But as some have said, you get what you pay for. So ISEC says it did not meet expected standards for secure code. This includes issues such as lack of comments, use of insecure or deprecated functions, for example, like transferring blocks of memory from one buffer to the, to the next and not using the newer transfer features which protect you from overruns, for example, which is not to say there are any, but that if you were writing code now and you really, really focused on every aspect of security, and, and again, this is hard, and time-consuming, and maybe they wouldn't have bothered if, if we were to impose all this on them from the beginning. But we don't have that in this code. Um, inconsistent variable types and so forth. Continuing with ISEC, they said, in contrast to the TrueCrypt source code, the online documentation available at truecrypt.org slash docs does a very good job at both describing TrueCrypt functionality and educating users on how to use TrueCrypt correctly. And actually, it turns out that some of the advice in the docs helps to mitigate some of the potential problems that were found. Although, again, none of these would put anyone, should put anyone off from using it at all. I mean, certainly having it is way better than not. This includes recommendations to enable full disk encryption that protects the system disk to help guard against swap, paging, and hibernation-based data leaks, which we've talked about in the past when we've talked about TrueCrypt. ISEC continues, the team found a potential weakness in the volume header integrity checks. Currently, integrity is provided using a string, which is four characters, true, all uppercase uh, T-R-U-E, and two CRC32s. The current version of TrueCrypt utilizes XTS as the block cipher mode of operation. Now, we've talked a lot, a lot about block cipher modes. You know, CBC, for example, is the one we often talk about. Um, and there are, they, they mention how this doesn't have authentication. And, and uh, Isaac writes, which lacks protection against modification. However, it is insufficiently malleable to be reliably attacked. The integrity protection can be bypassed, but XTS prevents a reliable attack, so it does not currently appear to be an issue. Nonetheless, it's not clear 
why a cryptographic hash or an HMAC was not used instead. And, you know, you'd have to agree with them. It's sort of odd to use a pair of CRC32s, but that's what they did. Finally, writes ISEC, ISEC found no evidence of backdoors or otherwise intentionally malicious code in the assessed areas. The vulnerabilities described later in this document all appear to be unintentional, introduced as a result of bugs rather than malice. And again, even so, those vulnerabilities were not severe. Then they also did a recommendation summary. So they said under recommendations, outside of the specific short and long-term recommendations detailed in Section 3 of this document, ISEC Partners also makes the following high-level recommendations. Update, and again, I'm sharing this because this helps to kind of paint the picture, to give you a sense for what TrueCrypt is, not as the user installing and running it, but as like someone looking at the source, you know, I mean, the whole source environment. So they said, update the Windows build environment. Okay, is everybody sitting down? The current required Windows build environment depends on outdated build tools and software packages that are hard to get from trustworthy sources. For example, following the reproducible build instructions requires access to Visual C++ (laughs) version 1.52, released in 1993. What? (laughs) That's 21 years ago. 21 years ago. (laughs) I happen to have a copy, but I'm not sure how many Mm, people do. So that gives you a sense for it. But couldn't you use a more up-to-date compiler? uh, It would work the same, or? It would break. It would break. Um, Interesting. Oh, yeah. Wait, well, we'll we'll get to it later. But because because the compilers produce all kinds of warnings about the code, they've... There's like a whole list of pragmas to disable those warnings in the TrueCrypt build in order to get it to yeah, build. Yeah. So, you know, the, so this gives this you a sense. This is probably because most of the focus is on the GCC open source version. And whoever wrote the Windows build instructions and builder, you know, has moved on. That's the problem with open source. Well, and they say, yes, they say in addition to various Windows ports of the GNU tools downloadable from wherever they can be found, uh, you you have to have this VC++ version 1.52. Using antiquated and unsupported build tools, these guys write, introduces multiple risks, including unsigned tools that could be maliciously modified, unknown or unpatched security vulnerabilities in the tools themselves, and weaker or missing implementations of modern protection mechanisms such as DEP and ASLR. Once the build environment has been updated, the team so 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 you're right, Leo. I mean, they're saying if we if we were to recommend something, it would be, among other things, fix the build environment because it's creaky and old. Um, and they say for the purpose of auditing. TrueCrypt should release instructions on how to create reproducible builds. And that's not something that's, you know, really ever been a concern. It's like, hey, it works. As far as we know, it's secure. Enjoy. And then their second recommendation was improve 
the code quality. Due to lax quality standards, TrueCrypt source is difficult to review and maintain. This will make future bugs harder to find and correct. It also makes the learning curve steeper for those who wish to join the TrueCrypt project, which is a good point. It's, it can be a little off-putting, you know, not to have like it, it all done in a uniform, really nicely well-documented and, and put-together uh, mode. And so then they said, just so that they were clear, the assessment explicitly excluded um, volume parsing, an analysis of the volume parsing as it relates to file containers, rescue disk code paths activated when the disk does not contain the private key, that is, you know, the recovery from an emergency uh, analysis, and any cryptographic analysis, which, by the way, is what's coming next, including the random number generator analysis, the algorithm implementation, security tokens, key file derivations, hidden containers, Linux and Mac components, this was only the Windows components, and all other components not explicitly included, meaning everything else. So um, let's see, I'm not sure how much more time I want to spend on this. I've got extensive notes here in the show notes if anyone is curious to dig in. Um, you could do the TLDR, just uh, bottom line. Yeah, so, okay, so, yeah, bottom line is that um, that this is, I mean, it, it's, in my opinion, it is entirely understandable that this is what TrueCrypt is today. Yeah. It, it, you know, I bet you see this with a great many, if not all, open source projects. I, I, that's I how that's it works. Exact- that's exactly the case, Leo. Yeah. It's it's a it's a function of them generally having a long history. Um, there's developer churn, where oftentimes the people doing it now, working on it, are you know aren't the people who founded it, and the founders have wandered off onto other things. You know, their lives changed. They graduated from college. You know, they they have a family to feed. Who knows? But, you know, so so there's that there's there's over time, there's different people bringing their own coding styles. You know, we've talked about ridiculous things. Well, which many people feel religious about, like, where do you put your your curly braces in, in your seat? Code? Oh, yeah. You want to start the, a war? Just, you know, <laughs> post your thoughts on that. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, but there 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 were. There were little things. For example, j- just to give you uh, the, the the third thing that I highlight here, there's this function burn. Burn is used, writes ISEC, to clear sensitive data throughout most of the TrueCrypt Windows kernel driver. Um, and what that is is it's a the, in Windows burn wraps the secure zero memory function, which zeros which you know securely overwrites memory uh with zeros to remove any cryptographic keys or other data you know anything sensitive before you release the memory back to the system and they they write this is guaranteed to securely erase memory and will not be optimized out however in a handful of places memset is used to clear potentially sensitive data. Memset is the, you know, the C equivalent where you're able to just say, you know, set this block of this length to this value, which is typically null or zero, and it does a non-secure zero. 
And the point is that calls to Memset run the risk of being optimized out by the compiler. Because what will happen That's is... That's an interesting the, bug. Yeah. Isn't that? Yeah. Yes. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? So so what happens is the compiler comes along, goes... Doo, 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 and it, really it, this. it sees... Yes, exactly. Yeah. It It's doing this very sophisticated, you know, flow analysis, and it notices that some moron has written some stuff to a buffer <laughs> and then freed it. And it's like, well, if you're going to free it, you why must bother? Yeah, why write Obviously, to it? Right. Why, yeah, this must have been some old code left over uh-huh. from somewhere. So let's, oh, we're, I'm an optimizing compiler. I realize this can never have any effect at all on the operation of the program. So get rid of it. That's real. I hadn't really thought of that. But yeah, optimization can often, I would bet, yes. uh, eliminate security precautions because they don't yes. affect the operation of the program. And and so the, in in there the again I'm very impressed with 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 what ISEC did. They said they have then after explaining this they have an exploit scenario. A user has a system with a TrueCrypt encrypted partition on it, in which they save sensitive information. An attacker creates a low memory situation on the user's machine, forcing key information that should have been securely wiped to be paged out to the unencrypted system disk. Hmm. The attacker later gains access to the disk and extracts the key from the paging oh. file. That, now, don't everyone freak out because, you have to have first of all, to the disk. Yeah. you have to have access to the disk. You, ha- you have to not be encrypting your system disk, which, right. you know, everyone should be doing and probably does now that, that TrueCrypt offers it. And... This is just theoretical. That is, they didn't actually demonstrate that sensitive data was left behind in one of these memset instances and that even in a low memory situation, you could actually swap it out. They're just saying, you know, this is the danger of not securely wiping memory. So then they said for their short-term solution, alter the above code to call burn instead of memset. Okay, that's easy enough. And or I bet term, I bet there are compiler switches saying don't optimize that stuff out. You wouldn't you even have to rewrite the code, right? Yes, you could certainly just say don't, you know, leave leave memsets alone and, yeah. you know, trust us that yeah. we did this for a reason. Yeah. And then they said audit the code for other instances of memset calls that should be replaced with calls to burn to prevent p- potential information leakage. Now, what, um, uh, what, for example, I'm doing with Squirrel is I'm deliberately bundling everything that is sensitive in one place so that rather than, unfortunately, for example, in TrueCrypt, it's strewn all over the place. I'm, because I'm thinking about this with security as, you know, that's the only thing I'm thinking about really Everything is allocated in one place, and that is it is locked in physical memory using some some uh, the, actually the virtual memory system to lock it so that it absolutely can never leave um, physical memory. And because I've you know every single time I add something to that structure, I, I you know I'm I wait is this sensitive is this sensitive is it you know I just that's where I put it I put it in there so it's always aggregated safely in in one location so you can you know you know you can treat it correctly 
Um, and they did say in their other advice, they said under suppression of compiler warnings, um, Microsoft compilers used to build TrueCrypt will warn against some of the issues mentioned above. However, in both the bootloader and Windows kernel driver, some of these warnings have been suppressed. And I, I skipped those when they're talking about above. They're like things like, oh, wait a minute. You use this in an in integer in a signed fashion here and an unsigned fashion elsewhere. That's absolutely something the compiler will raise a flag about. Unfortunately, rather than fixing it, they, the, the coders suppressed the warning. So they say some are suppressed with pragma, uh, pound pragma in the code, while others are suppressed in the build scripts. This results in the code compiling without warnings, even though it contains issues that should be corrected. And then they give an example of five or four different uh, pragmas being used to disable warnings that would otherwise be generated. And of course, for something arguably mission critical like TrueCrypt, you want to look at those warnings. It's like, wait a minute, did it find something that is important? So we can assume the author's carefully disabled these, but as an auditor coming in with a, an inherently adversarial stance, which an auditor has to have in a, in a mode like this, you know, it's like, well, it'd be better not to have these. And, you know, so no one's going to argue. So what all this means is that, that complex security software is so difficult to write and verify that as we have seen time and again, it becomes porous. I mean, it, it's a matter of like how much pressure do you put on it and some water leaks out. So, so what I think we're beginning to recognize with, with this, but certainly more poignantly with the open SSL problem, is that, you know, we the people who, who use this code and a subset of us who write this code don't have the resources that are required. I mean, th this was a, a very close look at a very small portion of TrueCrypt and lots more still to be audited. Yet it took, no doubt, a substantial investment of a couple guys' time really looking at this closely. And that means it's expensive. Someone has to pay for this. And the thing that's a little unsettling is that whereas we the people don't have the resources to deeply verify open source software, the NSA does. I mean, it's got apparent, reportedly a thousand people looking carefully at open source code. And there have been some claims, unsubstantiated, that the NSA may not always be acting in what we would consider the best interests of the industry but rather they're using these thousand people to gain intelligence for themselves and for their own purposes. So Matthew Green said, he tweeted, the second phase um, is now to perform a detailed crypto review and make sure there's no bug in the encryption. So that's what they're going to they're going to do as, you know, round two. Of this effort, and maybe maybe the quick bottom line, Bruce Schneier on his blog said, "Quick summary: I'm still using it." Yeah, yeah. So if it's yeah. good enough for Schneier, good enough for you. You do you it's use TrueCrypt at all? Um, uh, yes, I do have it on a laptop oh, because so I 
I carry the laptop around. Outside the house, and, yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. If there's anything where there's exposure, well, I mean, it just it just makes so much sense. It is, you know, there's, I would have been stunned if, and still will be, if anything deliberate is found. You know, again, in a multi, in a multi, developer mode if there were an interest in putting a back door in um and we know you know who <laughs> might have had some interest and and you know i mean the world's getting a little creepy because you know we're sort of seeing influence and we've been discussing this in the last months sort of the the notion of influence to to affect the crypto that we're all using, um, you know, maybe through employees implanted or, or, or you know, solicited to you know help with the U.S. national security interest. Who knows? Yeah. Um, but it's. I mean, as hard as it is to make something absolutely secure and bulletproof, um, it is so easy to sneak. A mistake in yeah, and and so the the problem is, it as we know the weakest the, the weakest link problem, something this complex, a small change could be introduced that looks just fine, but you know does create some leverage. Yeah. Oh, and in fact, one thing I skipped I want to mention is that one of these issues, I think it was with one of the the handling of an integer problem they in their exploitation scenario they mentioned that somebody could alter the boot code in order to use the overflow in a theoretical attack to a capture someone's login and but standing back from it it's like well wait a minute you know we know that the boot time is the vulnerability that is you know the 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 boot code comes up and asks you for your password. So, yes, if you allowed bad guys to play with your TrueCrypt encrypted hard drive out of your control, then they gave it back to you and said, uh, log in. Or actually, if you actually, if they snuck in and did it in the middle of the night without you knowing, then you gave your password to TrueCrypt. It's certainly conceivable that that modification would capture the password or who knows what it would do. I mean, it could just, you know, change it uh, on the fly to something that was, you know, known to them. So so there, there's there's still the vulnerability to the system getting going from from the start, which is, you know, worth noting. Yeah. Hey, let's take a break. We're going to talk more about uh, Heartbleed. Heartbleed. Some of the security news in the news. Our show today uh, is brought to you by our friends at Citrix. They do a product called ShareFile that solves a lot of problems uh, uh, sharing files. Well, that's, that makes sense, doesn't it? Uh, ShareFile is uh, designed to eliminate the idea of attaching email, you know, content to an email. And I think in business, it's not unusual at all to attach a spreadsheet or a contract or a presentation or whatever to your email. But as you know, if you listen to Security Now, that's inherently a bad idea. It's the way viruses are often spread. It's we try to train everybody listening not to open attachments, and it raises the issue. Well, what? Well, how do I send these files? Well, don't send them in attachments. Use ShareFile. 
ShareFile makes it really easy. ShareFile has a, uh, a synchronization tool on Windows and Mac. I can run it real quick and just show you. I don't have it running right now. Uh, that will synchronize all of, uh, you know, your selected folders, which means, for instance, I use ShareFile all the time. I'll record audio, save it to my ShareFile folder. It'll synchronize, and then it's on my ShareFile cloud storage. Now when I want to share that file, and I'll log into my cloud storage here real quickly and show you. I can do this on a smartphone, on a desktop, on a variety of computers. Um, first of all, you can add users. So you're, you're, if you go into a folder, you'll see that there are people already that you've added as users with various permissions. That means they'll, they can set it up so they just, let, they just know when the, the, fo the folder's updated. They go, oh, okay. Uh, or you can send them a file directly by just attaching it. Um, I'll, I'll go here and say, here's the, uh, here's the uh, sounder I rec recorded for KVOT. Hi, this is Leo Laporte, the tech guy, and blah, blah, blah. Uh, now, remember, I'm sending these to radio stations, and I cannot be sure that they have a technical person receiving that email. You know, they don't necessarily know what they're doing. I can send it as a, a standard email. I can use the Outlook uh, extension to make it look like it's an attachment. But, but basically, what I'm going to do is I'm going to send it as a link I can set all sorts of parameters so that I stay, I keep control over the file. Uh, I could say how many times they can download it, for how long, all of that. I'll get a secure link, which I'll attach to the email. And when, when you see what they get, it really is straightforward. They don't have to be a guru. Uh, they don't have to have an account with ShareFile. They'll literally get a link that opens a web browser, a page in a web browser. They'll see my logo. You know, you get it branded so that it, it looks like it's your company doing it with a big download button that tells them what they're going to get. It, it's very clean, very easy for people to use. You can send files of almost any size. You can control who has access to those files, what kind of permissions they have. You can confirm when files are received with tracking and email alerts. Your share file cloud is always accessible to you anytime. You can, uh, you can easily set this up. In, in fact, why don't you try it free for 30 days right now by visiting sharefile.com. Click the link at the very top of the page where it says podcast listeners. Uh, click here. Start your free trial. Enter the word security now. One word, security now. And uh, 30 days free for you. Do, do uh, select your, um, your uh, business because the, Sharefile is HIPAA compliant, compliant with regulations in many industries. And so, they'll, you know, if you select the business you're in, they'll, they'll kind of tailor it. To your needs, I really love ShareFile. It saved a saved me a lot of time, solved a huge problem for me. How to get files out quickly and easily without risking security, without uh, confusing the recipients. ShareFile.com. Use the offer code security now. One word for thirty days free. Steve Gibson, Leo Laporte. We're talking security, and uh, on we go. So our wrap up. a comic. We have to start with a comic because. The, the fabulous is it XKCD? Always, yes, yes, love it. He he just summed up Heartbleed in such a wonderfully techy, perfect fashion. So this was xkcd.com slash one three five four. So if anyone didn't encounter it over the course of the last week, it's just great because you know last week we did a, a full deep dive into what heart beat and a heart bleed is in in TLS and basically this cartoon you know say could have saved you an hour of listening to me um, <laughs> well it explains how heart bleed works i mean it doesn't say anything yes. about 
mitigation, but it does explain exactly how you're able to get 64K out of server memory. Yeah, it's just it's it's just it's wonderfully whimsical and and a, a simple graphic explanation. So xkcd.com slash one three five four. He's really smart. He really uh he gets this clearly. Stuff. Yeah. Uh, oh my! I, and my all-time favorite is that circuit diagram. Oh my <laughs> God! I, I always, I keep encountering it, and I just stare at it for a while more and look at the spider web and the blob of solder. And I mean, just, it's just a classic cartoon. Clearly, somebody who understands schematics, uh, you know, did that. So yeah, that, that never gets old. So Robin uh, Segelman said he accidentally oh yep there it is leo yeah, yeah, oh my yeah. god it's just on oh, that resistor that <laughs> resistor network oh god I, there's a flux there's a flux capacitor from back to the future oh no the, the more the more you understand about engineering it's just it's just too wonderful yeah, yeah. oh i love that little nest down the lower the low, the far left right oh or the lower left yeah oh god yeah too fun <laughs> What number is that one? Or is it just, uh, it's always linked? Uh, xkcd.com slash 730, 730. Oh, that one is inspired. Yeah, good one. Yep. So. He's publishing Robin a book, Segel- by the way, and I look forward to seeing that. Oh, good. That yeah, would be great. Yeah. So Robin Segelman, who uh, was the individual who coded the, what turned out to be, you know, as, you know, Schneier initially said, on a scale of 1 to 10, this is an 11. Many people said the worst internet security, you know, event happened in the history of the internet. It's like, yeah, okay. Well, it turned out not to be as bad, I think, as as it could have been, certainly. Anyway, so he said, quote. This is the guy who introduced the bug, Robert Segelman. Yeah. said, I was working on a research project at the University of Munster using, or was it Munster? I don't know. Munster. Munster. Yeah. Munster. Munster. Using the OpenSSL encryption library and releasing bug fixes and new features that were developed as part of my work on the OpenSSL project. So, you know, he was at the university contributing. The various changes were checked by a member of the OpenSSL development team and then incorporated into the official code, which, you know, tells us that's how it works. In connection with one extension, the TLS DTLS heartbeat extension, I failed to check that one particular variable, a unit of length, contained a realistic value. This is what caused the bug, called heartbleed after the extension. Unfortunately, the OpenSSL developer who reviewed the code also did not notice that a mistake had been made when carrying out the check. As a result, the faulty code was incorporated in the development version, which was later officially released. And of course, as we know, from version 1.0.1 through 1.0.1f, everything had that code, which had this unchecked buffer uh, length claim. Basically, the, the, the user said, uh, you know, give me this much. And even though there, you hadn't you know, that you hadn't given it that much for it to return to you, it returned it anyway, which often, you know, caused it just to give you up to 64K of stuff, whatever it happened to have in that area of memory. 
So um, what was interesting is I found a, a timeline of the discovery and dissemination, which, uh, which a reporter, Ben Grubb, did uh, reporting for the Sydney Morning Herald. There's a link because I'm not going to go through the entire timeline because it just goes on and on and on. But the beginning of it is interesting because we, have, we now have evidence that uh, Neil Mehta of Google Security discovered Heartbleed no later than March 21st. So Google was aware of it several weeks before its official unveiling. Then um, later in the morning, we have, we have a time stamp on this one at 10.23 a.m. And all of these are, are, are Google time, essentially Pacific time. Uh, Bodo uh, Mueller and Adam Langley. Adam is, of course, famous for – we were talking about him often. He's made deep into the security of – of Chrome and the uh, um, and the whole Google Chrome and Chromium project, they commit a patch. Oh, that's how we know the time because the timestamp. They commit a patch for the flaw. This is according to the timestamp on the patch file Google created and later sent to OpenSSL, which OpenSSL forwarded to Red Hat and others. The patch is then progressively applied to Google services and servers across the globe. So Google. Essentially, Google discovered this. And I was also originally unclear about how this Codenomicon deal happened. Turns so out... It was two researchers, but Codenomicon was in Mountain View, right? Well, or he but was in the... It, no, he, he's actually Finnish. Yeah, but he was in the was, States. No, he, well, I don't know where he was physically located, right. but it was an independent discovery. It was independent, okay. Yeah, so that's what was in, and in fact, it was due to the dual independent discovery that suddenly people started getting worried that if people, if this, you know, like lightning can strike once, and it's like, well, okay, you know, what are the chances of it striking again in the same place? Well, it struck twice in the same place. So suddenly they were, you know, sort of that sort of amped up the concern that this needed to get remediated. So, uh, so ten days went by after March after the first indication we have of Google knowing of it on March twenty first. On the thirty first, the last day of March, um, someone tells con, and we don't know really who, but we just know when because we know what content di- uh, distribution network Cloudflare about Heartbleed, and Cloudflare patches against it. And then later boasts on its blog about how they were able to protect their clients before many others were protected. So there was, there was, so there's, there's sort of a, a pact of secrecy among a small group, um, which begins to fragment as leaks spring. And you know, and 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 of course, this is much easier to reassemble retrospectively than it is, you know, at the time. Then on April Fool's Day which was the, the, the Tuesday a week before we were, we were first reporting on Heartbleed, which only happened the night before the April 8th podcast, which was last week's podcast. So a week before that, Google Security notifies OpenSSL about the flaw. It's found in OpenSSL, uh, which then becomes known as Heartbleed. Mark Cox at OpenSSL says the following on social network 
on, on Google Plus. He says, quote, original plan was to push a fix that week, but it was postponed until April 9th to give time for proper processes. And of course, even that April 9th date didn't stick because we found out about it on, on the 7th. Um, then on the, on the 2nd, which would have been, you know, the, the day, well, obviously after April Fool's. In fact, I would have been worried about April Fool's announcement, but yeah. uh, for all the reasons we talked about. Then on, the, on April 2nd, a Finnish IT security testing firm, Codenomicon, separately discovered the same bug uh, that Neil found at Google in, in of course, you know, the same thing, the, the, the heartbeat, the open SSL bug. Um, Friday on, on April 4th, content distribution network Akamai patches its servers. Um, they initially say, and it's interesting too, because again, there's, they know that they've done things that they can't disclose. They initially say OpenSSL told them about the bug, but the OpenSSL core team denies this in an email interview, which was conducted by this reporter. Then Akamai updates its blog after the denial, and Akamai's blog then says that an individual in the OpenSSL community told them, not part of the core team. Um, then rumors. It turns out there are rumors on Friday, April 4th, within the open source community about there being a bug in OpenSSL, but nobody has any details. So it ends up just being ignored. It's like, well, you can't tell me anything more. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, so it's just a rumor. And then finally on April 5th, when this is something that sort of puzzled people, was how it was that this Heartbleed site sprung into existence with a cool logo, as several noted. So it was on Saturday, April 5th, that the Codenomicon group purchased the Heartbeat, heartbleed.com domain name and apparently began working on a cool, you know, dripping blood logo uh, for the whole thing. And if anyone's curious, this goes on to talk about the, the timeline after we've all found out about it, but which is, you know, less interesting to me. So, you know, th th that to me, this is sort of a, a snapshot into how the, you know, the actual world deals with something that they're hugely concerned about. You know, I mean, initially Google believes it's the only organization that knows about this. Um, they very quietly take care of their own network to, because I mean, again, this is this, you know, we talked about last week, this, the whole cat and mouse problem of when we announce this, it's going to take time for people to fix their servers. And in that window from announce time to fix time, there's, you know, a real heightened vulnerability. And in fact, uh, Bruce said on your Twit podcast on Sunday, Leo, he he one of the many things that was interesting that Bruce commented on. He said, you know, a very careful look at logs have have not revealed widespread scanning behavior. So you know, looking at there, you know, there are organizations that just capture everything, not just like protocol level or or you know like. The, the logs on an HTTP server that only shows 
specific requests, you know, get and post requests to the server, but actual raw traffic logs. Um, and, and they're big because they have everything in them. But that's also why they're valuable is that they allow you then to retrospectively go back and look for things that you didn't know at the time were important, but you later learn are important. And then you want to know, whoa, was this going on before? So it really, and, and the problem, of course, is that there is no place you can tap the entire internet if you're not the NSA. You're only, you're only tapping, you know, specific blocks in the best case, you know, like, a, like maybe all of a, of a large class network of IPs. So you're not going to see targeted attacks against specific sites. Those are always going to be invisible to anyone other than somebody monitoring the traffic on that one, you know, to that one IP uh, or, or cluster of IPs, depending on how large the site is. But you will see scanning activity. And Bruce said there was no sign of that. Yet, what, what did, he say, did he say within minutes or hours? I mean, it was it was like it was it was like almost almost instantly, basically. Yes, yeah. I think it was in minutes of the announcement, widespread scanning traffic appeared. Yeah. So, and that was one of the problems. Was this was, it was not really easy difficult. to weaponize? He said. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. So we know that Google knew of it prior to release. On, on March 21st, Cloudflare knew about it on March 31st. OpenSSL found out about it on April Fool's Day. Codenomicon independently discovered it the day after on April 2nd. Um, and they in, informed the National Cybersecurity Center in Finland, their own, their own local cyber group, who found out about it the next day. Um, and Akapai, uh, Akamai on the 4th. Uh, and apparently Facebook was also informed quietly, though no date was given. Um, so, uh, you know, th that's just the way this happens. Something is really big and, and, and everybody's trying to do the right thing. And the right thing probably means successively disclosing to, to organizations with whom you have less close ties because you are, you have less confidence in their ability, their ability and willingness to truly keep this quiet while remediation occurs behind the scenes in order to minimize the damage that's going to be done. Because everybody, the concern was, oh, my Lord, you know, we, you know, their claim was they did get keys. And we'll talk about the, the whether you could actually um, exfiltrate keys in a second because there, was, there were several people claiming that they, they didn't seem feasible until it it was again several times proven to be feasible, so so I I'm and I think what what you know that timeline that I just laid out is just the way it's going to be. You're you're going to have the major players who who know each other, you know, in the security end talking to each other, and they're going to say, "Look, we found something bad. You've got to fix." You know, you've got to fix your networks. There's a small change that fixes this problem. Um, you know, here it is. Get this. Get the old one off your servers. And and the idea is you. So you know, it's it's a secret that's hard to keep because 
it's significant. And so, so that says you're going to tell the, the fewest, largest groups first to get the greatest number of servers fixed that is truly pr- doing the best service for the greatest number of end users because you're fixing the largest services first. And then you just sort of work your way down the hierarchy. You know, this this pyramid explodes in terms of the size. It's not, you know, it's not a it's not a, a square edge pyramid. It's it's a it's a spike that's, you know, highly spiked and it drops off quickly in terms of you know the the size at which networks shrink and the number of networks explodes as you know as these are uh, decreasingly influential. But I just think this is the reality of it. It's gonna you're you're gonna have an inner sanctum of people who are notified, and everyone will find out sort of you know hopefully quickly enough. And of course, then what is incumbent? as we have seen on the administrators of those who are in, who only learn at the same time that the attackers do is that they act fast and so one of the even though i think in retrospect this turned out not to be as bad as it could have been the the fact that bruce thought it was an 11 and that people were breathless that gave the security people, the impetus to make the change. And in fact, that's why it didn't turn out to be as bad. And so, Leo, it turns out you were exactly right when you compared this to Y2K. Um, It's not that Y2K wouldn't have caused a problem. It's that it really did get fixed in time for it not to be a problem. Mm -hmm. And similarly, it was the, the relatively quick changing of certificates um, by all the people that really mattered because it looked like it was going to be a huge problem. You know, individually, for every single one of them in a microcosm, it was a huge disaster. It's like, oh, my God, you mean people can steal our key? (laughs) Well, we have to to prevent that. Right. Obviously. Yeah, it does. Eddie in Sweden points out, it does seem awfully odd that after two years, it was discovered virtually simultaneously. Isn't that interesting? That seems odd to me. But you know, and I, and I thought about that too since I learned of it. And there are, I, I just sort of think there are, there are sort of things in the air. Yeah. Like all these people are following the same mailing lists, and somebody will say something, and you know, maybe something was said on some mailing list that both of these guys subscribe to, and it wasn't about this, but it was about sort of. Something, you know, maybe in something else or uh, and something sort of simultaneously, you know, led them both to look in the same area. So it wouldn't have even had it wouldn't have been explicit. It's just, you know, if, if you give hazy information to enough people, several people will wind up in the same place. Yeah. And and so I could sort of see how, you know, there there's a just sort of network effect that there's there's, you know, enough um commonality within a community because these were both security guys focused on security mm-hmm. stuff mm-hmm. they're reading the same lists and so nobody said oh go look at this line of open ssl but they may have you know said something that just sort of led these two guys 
to be curious about the same thing. Makes sense. Makes sense. Now, what's really interesting to me is given the number of servers that we knew were vulnerable, that there hasn't been a certificate revocation, what Netcraft calls a tsunami. Um, I have a link here, probably if you just Google, Heartbleed Certificate Revocation Tsunami Yet to Arrive. I would imagine that that's in the URL. You'll probably get taken to it. And there's a nice chart. Uh, I've got it here in the show notes for every, for anyone who has the show notes. And Leo, you can scroll down below and see it's in the next page of the PDF where they chart the rate at which they're, you know, they're a network monitoring company located over in the UK, uh, Netcraft is, uh, and great stuff. They've had a lot of neat pages about all of this as they've been tracking it. So they said activity on certificate revocation lists peaked at a rate of 3,900 revocations per hour on the day the heartbeat heart bleed bug was announced that is april 7th on a typical monday they say we would expect to see a total of about now this is really interesting on a typical monday they see 22,000 to 30,000 ssl certificates being revoked over the course of one day so it's like, yow, 22,000 to 30,000 SSL certificates a day being revoked. So what they were seeing on, on Heartbleed Monday on April 7th was 3,900 revocations per hour. So definitely more than average. On the day that Heartbleed Bug was announced to the public, there were 29,000 revocations. So actually not, not above the high end of what they typically see. On the next day, Tuesday, 33,000 certificates were revoked, followed by 32,000 on Wednesday. Oh, and and Mondays do tend to be higher because revocations don't occur on the weekend, I guess, just because... Nobody's (laughs) there. No one's around, either at the certificate authorities or the companies. You know, they're all home drinking their iced tea or whatever, yeah. Yeah. Uh, not not busy revoking things or not issuing new certificates and, and revoking old ones. Because remember, not all revocations are due to theft. Most are, well, many, actually not most, because Netcraft also has a neat chart, a pie chart showing the percentage of revocations or of revocation reasons where reasons are known. Uh, we'll be talking about that a lot more in two weeks. Then they said on Tuesday, 33,000, uh, followed by 32,000 on Wednesday, so even beginning to drop. And then they say these were both above average, suggesting that around 5,000 certificates were revoked in direct response to the heart bleed bug. But wait a minute, 5,000? Hmm. I mean, that's tiny. That's nothing. Yeah. Um, then Netcraft reminds us about the formal certificate authority policy. I mean, this is not optional. And that is by agreement, you know, by by contract as a certificate authority, you must revoke certificates within 24 hours if there is evidence of a key compromise. A private key is said to be compromised if its value has been disclosed 
or if there exists a practical technique by which an unauthorized person may discover its value. Arguably, all certificates on sites vulnerable to the heart bleed bug, and we believe that's about 500,000, should be revoked by now, as such a technique was successfully carried out by the researchers behind heartbleed.com, and subsequently it's been demonstrated several times by, by hackers who took up the Cloudflare challenge we'll talk about in a second and, and succeeded. So it's a little puzzling that we're not seeing revocations, um, published revocations by certificate authorities. Um, it's, again, it's curious. Um, one wonders whether people remembered to revoke what they were replacing or whether they just replaced them and they left their previous keys um, no longer in use but still valid, uh, which would be a little creepy if that's the case. They also point now, out that because browsers do such a crappy job of – we talked about this last week. Oh, baby, and that's our topic in two weeks. Yeah. I, I'm, I've now – I've tuned myself up into an expert on this topic. Yes. Brow browsers don't notify you as often as they should of a revoked certificate. Correct. Um, click this bit.ly link next, Leo, before I mention it, because the site is very slow, and I would rather not mention it until you're able to bring the page Go up ahead. Uh, so that you can, you can show it. So the question is, how do we reliably, this is everyone's been wanting to know, reliably detect key reissue and possibly revocation? Now, Many sites are attempting to do this. LastPass added a service to, to their offering where they would show you when the keys had been changed. I'd heard reports that, unfortunately, it wasn't reliable. And what I'm guessing, and I never had a chance to, to check with Joe and, at LastPass and see whether they were just going by the issued date in the certificate. The point being that sometimes reissuing a certificate that's, that uses different, uh, a different public key, because, of course, you're going to rekey for safety, so you're going to have a different private key, but you're not really repurchasing the certificate, so that doesn't change the expiration date. It may very well not change the issued date. And I, I tried to find anywhere... Uh, where it was specified that a CA had to change the issue date mm. if they reissued a certificate sort of under the same purchase agreement as the original one. I couldn't find anything definitive, and I did see some indications that issue date is not always changed. So that's not definitive. What is definitive, naturally, is the certificate itself which absolutely will have a different hash, that is, a different serial number, essentially. So we've talked about years ago, I think it was back in October of 21, we talked about, um, about the whole certificate authority hierarchy problems and alternatives. And we've talked about, for example, Certificate Patrol, remember, which is an add-on for Firefox that I finally stopped using because Google was just issuing themselves certificates constantly. <laughs> uh, and it was just driving me crazy because Certificate 
Patrol kept telling me their certificates changed. Well, so there's one tool that is useful, but unfortunately not retrospectively. There's something else called the Perspectives Project, which started as an, I think, as an MIT research tool. It's continued to survive, and I created a bit.ly link for everyone, bit.ly slash sn hyphen 451. Well, you're right. It is slow. I mean, it took a long time for this to come up. Well, and you should get some charts. They're they're scalable vector graphics charts, so they'll 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 pop in um, right in that empty area there. Yeah, yeah Leo. Yeah, it's slow. Uh, um, what now? Here's what's cool about that. the The idea was how about how, how about a a different approach than using the certificate authority hierarchy. How about if we, and they call it perspectives, because they said, how about if we had servers scattered around the internet, all looking at the certif- at the security certificates being issued by all the websites? I'm not sure what that means. Um, I mean, like the popular ones, certainly. Ah, there, you've got the graph, finally. Finally. And, <laughs> and isn't that cool? Yeah. Now what we're seeing is a number of different servers that all detected the change in the certificate serial number uh, between six and seven days ago that LastPass made. And, and that, that bit.ly link, <coughs> excuse me, SN-451, unfortunately, to go to this page, this, the, this notary page that queries the servers, um, you need to give it a, um, a, a, a non-blank quantity. So I just gave it lastpass.com because everybody knows LastPass. But you can up above, you can put any website you want to in, which is is in the is in their database. And this page queries the the servers it, that are running constantly con- continually retrieving certificates from secure websites and logging the hash of the certificate. So you don't depend upon issue date. What you get is an absolutely definitive instance of them changing their certificate. So I wanted to let our, 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 that our, our listeners know there is a very good way to know when a certificate is changed retrospectively. There's both a 10-day history and a, is it a 100 or 200-day history? I think it's a 200-day history of change. In fact, if you if you use if you use that on GRC, I haven't had to change my certificate because I was using Windows, which didn't have this vulnerability because it wasn't using OpenSSL, and so I so nothing will show on my on the ten day example. But you will see when I rekeyed for expiration uh, a few months ago when I got my new Digicert certs and then talked about how great they are, um, the certs and Digicert. So anyway, I wanted to let everyone know there is a way to definitively find out. You have to be a little patient. And as soon as I get a moment, I want to write a, a fast, inst- a fast uh, front end for the, the Perspectives Project. This, this site is really slow. And unfortunately, for the last week, because the word did get out, it's been, 
real, I mean, unbearably slow. It works. You just have to be very patient. You know, start the query, go away, and you'll 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 get results. But I, I GRC should have a snappy front end because it turns out the servers themselves are there. They're able to respond and and give results immediately. There also is a plugin for Firefox. Firefox users can use this Perspectives plugin. It's now at version four point something. Um, and it gives you instant results. So if you don't want to use this painfully slow website and you are using Firefox, you can install the Perspectives plugin and then go to a site and then have get, get the Perspectives readout on, on what that site. It gives you the same cool chart of, of like a timeline of when the certificate changed uh, from all the various servers. Um, so in this process of the last week, one of the other things we had was a number of people saying, you know, eh, we're not so sure there's really any danger at all. We know that the researchers claimed to have attacked themselves and obtained their own keys and passwords and other vulnerable things. Uh, we tried it and we didn't get anything except noise. So we're going to call you on it. Um, Robert Graham, who's well-known uh, in the security industry, uh, he was the guy who did the Black Ice uh, firewall years, years and years ago, back in the early personal firewall days. He extensively blogged about how, yep, you know, he didn't think, and there were like arguments to support this about the way the Malik works and, and you know, the way memory is allocated and all these reasons why it isn't the case that, that, Anything useful is going to be there. So for a while, those of us who were following this moment to moment were like, oh, okay. So to their credit, Cloudflare, who, as we mentioned before, were among the very first to rekey their network when they got the word, they said, okay, we're going to create a challenge. At, it's at www.cloudflarechallenge.com. Uh, slash Heartbleed, and actually they they created that domain. They've huh. since killed. Yes. <laughs> okay, go they've, ahead. They've, re <laughs> they've they've revoked it. Um, but what's interesting is first. So first of all, they created a challenge. It was answered by two hackers who successfully recovered the private SSL security key for. They're, I think they're using Nginx for their Nginx server um, and, and you know, basically won the challenge. One of them then installed the Cloudflare <laughs> private key on his own server. That's one way to prove it. <laughs> and then said, and then said, put this IP address into your host's file. Because you'll remember last week I explained that... It was one thing to get the key, but you also had to convince the user's browser and thus probably their computer or DNS that the fraudulent server was at the stolen domain. So you need some sort of attack on DNS. E either a man in the middle would allow you to, to poison DNS on the fly um, or... And as I mentioned last week, modifying the host's file. So this guy said, put cloudflarechallenge.com and, and, and make it map to my IP. 
And then you, in your browser, and it works, you could go <laughs> www.cloudflarechallenge.com, and up comes the page. It's got the, the perfect padlock. Everybody's happy, and you are not at Cloudflare. Wow. You are at this guy's site. So it was, you know, very cool. Um, That's one way of proving and, it, huh? Yeah, and, and we absolutely verified that, that, in fact, it's not easy. In fact, these guys... Had to, you know, they wrote a script that pounded on the server. The idea was that, you know, memory is churning, and, and you know, as as all the as, as as all of the servers, different users come and go and log in and log out and are are being served images and pages and everything. So there's a huge churn. So what they needed to do was they needed to create a high frequency of snapshots. Of forty of 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 sixty four k, and essentially exfiltrate a stream, a constant stream of noise from the remote server, and then analyze that noise for the fingerprint of a key. And after gobs of memory and many many hours, they caught one in in two different cases. Mm. So yes, it works. Yes, it's a pain. It may not work on every server. And in fact, Robert may well have been right that, for example, that on Apache, due to the way Apache allocates memory, it can't work. But on Nginx, maybe it can. I mean, so these are things, you know, de details that maybe people will work out over time or maybe we'll all just decide that it doesn't matter because we've all updated our, our certs. And now, Leo, well, while garbage is being picked up... Would be a good time to take a break. And then you're going to address this whole thing at... Who, did the NSA really do this? Yes. 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 Uh, our show today brought to you by our good buds at Carbonite Online Backup. As we've mentioned many times before, the best um, medicine to take before you get hacked, attacked. Of course, not get hacked, attacked in the first place. But if, if you've got a good backup... You're a good way along the way to a recovery, especially if it's crypto locker that's biting you in the butt. Carbonite is the way to back up. Automatic, so you don't have to remember it. Continuous, so every change you make is backed up immediately when you're online. And it's to the cloud. That's why the online part. It's up into the Carbonite servers. Uses SSL. Carbonite is not susceptible to heartbleed. But it also, more importantly... You can use Trust No One encryption, so you don't have to worry. If you really want to protect yourself, you can. 300 billion files and more every second backed up by Carbonite servers. 50,000 small businesses trust their files to Carbonite. A total of 3 billion files have been restored. That's kind of the most mind-boggling number of all. Those are files that have been lost, would have been lost forever if they weren't using Carbonite. If you don't back up automatically, continuously, and off-site at your home or office, you need to right now. Carbonite.com. Here's a way you can try it free. Just use our offer code security now. You don't need a credit card. Two weeks free. It'll give you a good sense of how Carbonite works. And then if you decide to turn off the garbage trucks as the NSA backs up and gets all of Steve's data... Uh, and if you decide you like it, use the offer code security now during the trial. You'll get two months free with your purchase. That's a good deal. Always a one low, flat, yearly rate. 
uh, as little as $59.99 a year for everything on a single Mac or a PC, but they've got plans for workstations, for databases, for live applications. You were, if, in fact, if you have a specialized application, call them. You can even send them a hard drive. There's all sorts of ways to do it. Carbonite, HIPAA compliant. Join the folks who have protected their memories, their data. It's tax time. What would have happened had you not had those documents you filed your taxes with? Carbonite, make sure you'll always have them. It's peace of mind protection. Carbonite.com. Use our offer code security now for two weeks free trial and two months free with purchase. Do you shred? I'm just curious, Steve. Do you shred your uh, your documents? Yeah, yeah. I got a, sh- a shredder right here next to me. So you basically, if the uh, if the uh, NSA is stealing your garbage, they can they're welcome to it. Yeah, and it's one of the confetti shredders that you know chops in both directions. Yep, yep. It's less like, well, yeah, well, you know, why not? Why not? I mean, because there are there is stuff that I'm receiving, you know, like like you know, investment stuff that where i get like an up a monthly update of my where my what my portfolio looks like and it's like you know so i'm producing you know all the all of the previous ones i don't care about well i don't want to just put that in the garbage because yeah it just makes sense not well, we, to we all get credit that. card offers in the mail oh those endless checks i just you know i and tear those, them, somebody uh, can I, steal that from I, your mailbox and use it uh, I, I, I tear them up into small pieces. I'm so annoyed yeah. that, I, that I, you know, I'm constantly getting these, you know, oh, look, you can write a check against your, your credit card. It's like, don't send me this. I don't want to. And, and other people, you know, want to take advantage of it. It's yeah, that, just, that really, really annoys me. It really irks me, too. Like the credit card companies deserve what they get. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. So, so Bloomberg says, and boy, uh, it just doesn't make any sense to me. That they have two sources who confirm that this was planted by the NSA. So as I under... No, no, no. That the NSA knew. Oh, that's different. You're right. Not planted, because we know who planted it. Right. <laughs> that they knew right. about it early on, maybe day of, and have been yes. exploiting it ever since. So so they said the U.S. They, they wrote the Bloomberg, and this was very controversial. I just rolled my eyes. They said the U.S. National Security Agency knew, they're stating it as a fact, knew for at least two years about a flaw in the way that many websites send sensitive information, now dubbed the Heartbleed Bug, and regularly used it to gather critical intelligence. Two people familiar with the matter said. Mm. Now, I guess journalistically, if you have something doubly sourced, is that like the requirement? You know, well, to- it was in all the president's men. I... It just okay. every publication has their own standard, but uh, two if they were two independent sources, that's a pretty good confirmation that it's true. I mean, well, uh, okay. So we don't know if these I, two sources were independent. By the way, given what I just told you about how you must exfiltrate data right. in order to get anything valuable. You know, it's like used it regularly to gather critical yeah. intelligence. It's, it's like it's, it's oh, not okay. a useful tool. It's a noise spray, yeah. is what it is. Yeah. And it's like okay, you know, yeah, two guys sucked out, you know, for like a day trying to find something of value. Um, it, the thing that really did upset people was the fact that servers wouldn't log this. Remember that, like, it left no trace in the logs. Well. You know, if, if someone was looking at traffic from an IP, 
there was certainly a spike in traffic to the IP of the guys that were exfiltrating all this noise from from the servers. But the problem is, as I mentioned, logging is on the other side of the connection. Once you get the connection and a, a query is made, that's when an HTTP server will log the query. This is pre-query. You know, this is, you know, you, you establish the TCP connection, then it's, you bring up the, the TLS handshake, and it's right then, while you're sort of holding, that you, you're, a, you're able to try to pull all this data. So, uh, you know, it's like, okay, well, first of all, these people refuse to go on the record. They refuse to be named. We don't know who they are. You know, could have been Mutt and Jeff. And they both, you know, told Bloomberg, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah it's for sure. On for long, yeah. years and years. Yeah. So I don't know. You know, did they know? We, we don't know. Um, it certainly is the case that this is the kind of thing they would love to have known about. Maybe we just succeeded. Maybe the best consequence is that we just succeeded in snipping, you know, a, a conduit of information uh, from from the NSA. Now, the EFF, uh, with their strong, you know, recognized bias, because because it's it's worth you know mentioning. We have to remember, you know, who who is saying this. Said there does well. No, I'm saying there does seem to be some evidence of previous, as in November 2013, use of Heartbleed. So uh, they wrote, uh, and, and, and to their credit, they first dismissed some probably false positive reports because there, there were some early false positive reports. But then another bulk data log turned up. They said the second log seems much more troubling. We have spoken to Ars Technica's second source, Terence Komen, who reports finding some inbound packets immediately following the setup and termination of a normal handshake, meaning setup and completion of a normal handshake, containing another client hello message followed by the TCP payload bytes and then it's ones I've gotten used to seeing the last week, 18030200301400. That's sort of it's that that's the signature of of Heartbleed. Um in ingress packet logs from November 2013. So for whatever reason, Terrence was logging raw incoming traffic to to wherever, uh, EFF continues saying, these bytes are a TLS heartbeat with contradictory length fields and are the same as those in the widely circulated proof-of-concept exploits. Coleman's logs had been stored on magnetic tape in a vault. Now, yeah, because they're big. I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna capture every byte, regardless, then it's gonna be a lot of data, you know. And he's not the NSA, so it's not in a big server farm in Utah. Uh, magnetic tape in a vault. The source IP addresses for the attack were 
193.104.110.12 and 193.104.110.20. Interestingly, those two IP addresses appear to be part of a larger botnet that has been systematically attempting to record most or all of the conversations on Freenode and a number of other IRC networks. This is an activity that makes a little more sense for intelligence agencies than for commercial or what EFF calls lifestyle malware developers. So it's like, oh, that's interesting. That's, those are not random bytes. You don't, you're not going to get that by mistake. So we do, I think, have strong evidence that something late last year was poking. Although, again, a poke is not valuable except to say, except as a vulnerability test. So that was a vulnerability test against those servers as opposed to a, a any exfiltration of useful yeah, data. Once because is not that enough. I mean, exactly. That's yeah. going to take, you know, megabytes or gigabytes in order to to just happen uh, to, to come up with something useful. Uh, and I've got some other stuff here, but... <laughs> Looking at it, really, uh, looking at it, it's like oh, we've sort of we've we've covered it, and uh, I think we've uh, we've done our job here. Um, Dan Kaminsky, I mentioned. We remember Dan, of course, oh, yeah. from uh, uh, many many, and, yeah. yeah, exactly. Pondone, and also the the famous uh, DNS um, uh, low probability uh, uh, spoofing uh, warning uh, from years ago. He wrote, he waxed poetic about sort of what does this mean? What does the open SSL vulnerability mean to the Internet? Uh, and then it got so long that he wrote his own abstract at the beginning of his, his waxing. And he said, Heartbleed, I'm, I'm going to share just the abstract with you. He said, Heartbleed wasn't fun. It represents us moving from attacks could happen to attacks have happened. And that's not necessarily a good thing. The larger takeaway actually is this wouldn't have happened if we didn't add ping. He's calling the heartbeat a ping. Uh, the takeaway uh, is, he says, the larger takeaway, I'm sorry, the larger takeaway actually is not this wouldn't have happened if we didn't add ping. The, lo the takeaway is we can't even add ping. How the heck are we going to fix everything else? The answer is that we need to take Matthew Green's advice. Start getting serious about figuring out what software has become critical infrastructure to the global economy and dedicating genuine resources to supporting that code. It took, he writes three, but the number is actually two years to find Heartbleed. We have to move towards a model of no more accidental fines, meaning being proactive. And being proactive means generating the funds 
and create an organization that un, that identifies the essentially hobby hobbyist written right. code. That's the issue, I think. You know. Which which as a consequence of its success and sort of organic popularity on the internet has gone mainstream and everybody is using it and no one has ever audited it. And so I, I think that closes the loop. That's that's really, you know, I mean, th th this was a beautiful wake-up call um, for like, oh my God, you know, as Schneier said, 11 out of 10 in terms of alarming. But what do we learn from this? It's that that, you know, a guy in a university extended a protocol that the world, now you know, 66%, even though it turns out only 17.5% actually had this enabled or updated, two-thirds of the world is using OpenSSL. And, you know, we, we haven't talked about the fact that Android, the Android people have in their hands version 4.1.1 has this vulnerability and that there's really no mechanism for them updating the the firmware in their phone which and that it's not just a server side vulnerability it's also a client side vulnerability because the server or whomever you connect to is as able to to ask you for a heartbeat back as you are to ask them. So it does affect clients as well. And of course, Cisco and Juniper uh, both reported that their routers were affected. Those routers have open SSL in their, uh, in their large kernels. So, so I, I really think that's, that's the takeaway. Uh, and I had one last little bit, which is not about Heartbleed, but is a, another example a perfect example of why security is hard because Google has just patched an Android icon permissions attack. Believe it or not, your icons can attack you. <laughs> um, a group called FireEye found malware that could change other icons on the Android home screen sending victims to phishing sites. InfoWorld reported this story. Uh, it was the, uh, the security research firm FireEye. Um, and it turns out that the malware is abusing a set of permissions known as com.android.launcher.permissions.readsettings and all of that.writesettings. Those two permissions have always been classified as normal, which is a designation given to application permissions thought to have no malicious exploitability. Android users aren't warned about granting those permissions when they install an application because, you know, no one ever saw any reason why you couldn't let applications have those permissions. But using these normal permissions, a malicious app can replace legitimate Android home screen icons with fake ones that point to phishing apps or phishing websites. Uh, FireEye developed a proof-of-concept attack using Google's Nexus 7 tablet running Android version 4.2.2, .2, 
to, to demonstrate that icons could be modified to send people to another website. During their test, they briefly uploaded the application to Google's Play Store only to demonstrate that it could get there, uh, and then they removed it quickly, during which time nobody else had downloaded it. Uh, and they did that because Google's Play, Google's Play Store does check applications for security issues, but did not prevent this from appearing in the store. Um, then they tested it on the Nexus 7, uh, running uh, Cyanogenomod, uh, yeah, as well as Cyanogen mod, as well as a Samsung Galaxy S4 running Android 4.3 and HTC One running 4.4.2, and which are all that they had. Every one that they tested was vulnerable. All classify the read settings and write settings permission as normal. So um, I don't know what is the the whole patching story with Android and phones because well, a whole ton of phones now have this. I guess now what will happen is Google will No, will that's the change. problem. Nobody's going to change it. So the only one that's really vulnerable is 4.1.1. And unfortunately, it's up to the carriers to push the updates. So Google has wait, gone no, no, well wait, beyond wait. 4.1.1. Yeah, um, wait, no. We're, we're, I'm sorry. I jumped from, from, from two different things. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, no. I thought no, you were no, still talking my, about Heartbleed. Right, that's my fault. Okay. Uh, so, so yeah, four, so four one one and vulnerability. Now, before I, um, it's worth saying that again, what this what this means is that some that if you connected to a server with your phone, um, th- that server could exfiltrate sixty four k, but we don't know that it's you know that there's know anything valuable. Yeah. Yeah. And we know statistically it's very unlikely right. that something is valuable. So it's like, eh, it's not clear to me that that uh, represents a huge problem. Right. Yes. But this, um, but, but, but these launcher permissions, the, the malicious oh, icons. Oh, sorry. Back to the icons. I'm sorry. I, I, it was my fault. You did say icons. I wasn't. Yeah. So, that, yeah. so that's the one that is effect, you know, that's always been this way. And so what I'm wondering is, so I guess what Google can do is they can, they can reclassify the permissions and change yeah. their store filter so that apps are going to have to, you know, request this. Google Play is updated by Google. So this right. is not an issue at all. Right. Um, right, because, yes. uh, yeah. So they will prevent applications from from getting in and, and you know. So I'm, I, I'm just rereading this how this uh, attack works. Um. Yeah, I mean, so I, they don't vet they don't vet apps really that closely. Not, but you know, by the way, Apple, which claims to let's malware in. In fact, this just happened the other day. All the well, time. and when we've talked about. It. I mean, unfortunately, can't. it's yeah. They as you and, and as you said, I I, I heard you quote that yeah. you know the ten thousand apps a day yeah. go through the app through Apple to the App Store, and they do the the best job they can. They'll take them down when they find out about them, but you know, unfortunately, they have to be reactive. It sounds like the, the vendors are in fact the people who need to do this particular update. Um, yeah. So a Google device will be updated. Any Nexus device will be updated. Um, immediately, but uh, you know, if you have a Galaxy S4 or S5, it has to go through Samsung. Yeah, and uh, and then after Samsung, I think it still has to go through the uh, carriers. Right. So you've, you've got uh, yeah, it's difficult. 
Um, I don't know. So um, I have a media note uh, for our listeners. Our, when we first mentioned Orphan Black quite a while ago, a, a production of BBC America, or I guess BBC, and it's now on BBC America, a huge, we got a great response. Uh, for people who don't remember, this was this amazing show where one actress plays a large variety of roles as clones. And I don't know how you make TV like this where there's three of her in the room. And, <laughs> good, and I mean, it is really well done. Yeah. Anyway, we've got a huge bunch of uh, really positive feedback from listeners. So I wanted to give everyone a heads up that season two starts this coming Saturday on BBC America. And that there will be, if, if for anyone who didn't catch the first season, they're, they're doing a marathon of the entire season one back-to-back uh, preceding that. So you might check BBC America if you have access to it. Uh, again, I, I recommend it without, without reservation. It's just it's very engaging, really interesting. Um, SF Gate commented that the, with the season two is delving a little more into the ethics side of cloning. You've got, you know, various forces back and forth. And an, an interesting story is woven around this. Uh, uh, and SF Gates said, as good as it was last year, uh, it's off to an even better start in its sophomore year. So uh, very recommended. I don't have any squirrel news because this entire week I've been saturated by Heartbleed and by my own work over on GRC, there's a lot more that I have to talk about, which we will get to in two weeks uh, when we talk about the revocation revelation. That is, you know, we've referred to it a couple times, the, the poor job that browsers do of checking, even noticing that, that certificates have been revoked. The problem is certificates live for two or three years and so there could be a multi-year window during which a certificate that had escaped could be abused if it if the browser that was using it didn't know that it was revoked. So um, uh, I've I now am really up to speed on revocation. Uh, there's a number of pages over on GRC that are not yet public. Uh, they they will be shortly. Um, and we'll talk about it in two weeks. Uh, but I hope to finish that literally this afternoon, and then it's back to Squirrel, which is where I want to get to. And I, I just wanted to say, give a thank you to the people who purchase site licenses for Spinrite. Uh, it's completely optional, and it's just the honor system. But, you know, what happens at my end is I see four, I, I hear for yabba dabba doos, uh, it like like one after the other, just as quickly as Fred is able to give them, uh, and what that means is that someone bought four copies of Spinrite. What's also neat is when I hear three, because the way the licensing works, if you have one copy, you are a fi- a formally entitled to use it on all the machines that you personally and privately own forever, and. Forever is probably not that far from accurate because, or that is to say is pretty accurate because here I am on the cusp of doing a major 
revision to six, which is now 10 years old, and that's going to be free for everyone. So that ought to take everybody for another 10 years. Uh, And, you know, so you buy it once and you probably get to use it forever. But what we ask companies to do, if they're going to use it on, for example, all the machines in a site, is to get a site license, which is simply holding, you know, owning four copies. And I kind of cooked up that approach because it allows someone to buy one, like, like, like the IT department, to figure it out, to test it, see if it works, if it makes sense. And then they can upgrade themselves to a site license by buying three more. Or they can just buy four right off the bat, which often happens. And then what's cool is that in the future, when I do move us to seven, that will be a paid upgrade. And then what what we ask is for people to upgrade whatever they have. If you've got one copy and you want seven, pay for one. If you're a site license, upgrade your site license, which means pay for four upgrades. So the whole thing is like it's easy from our end. We're not having to like credit people for the one copy they purchased in order to test it before they decide they want to get a license and, and so forth. And that just sort of makes the whole system easy to run. But what, again, what's so neat is when I hear, you know, four yabba-dabba-doos in a row, uh, it means that, uh, you know, a company decided they're going to run SpinRite throughout their whole organization, which is uh, always great to hear. Congratulations, Steve. (laughs) It is great to hear. Steve Gibson is at grc.com. That's where you'll find Spin, right? And you can make those yabba-dabba-doos happen. You can also subscribe to the show. Well, actually, you can download the show there. He's got 16 kilobit audio for the bandwidth impaired, plus full handwritten human-created transcriptions. Uh, it's funny. Uh, last week, Elaine sent me a, a, a note when she was sending the transcripts back. Why didn't I hear the uh, garbage truck last week, uh, <laughs> or, or during the podcast? We're getting like, good okay, at putting man. an ad on top of it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's why. Uh, um, so grc.com. That's also where you can go to ask questions. And if we ever do another feedback episode, maybe next week. Uh, uh, we're G- gonna, uh, yes. Don't promise. If the, if the industry allows us to. You're right. Exactly. can't promise. grc.com slash feedback is uh, the place. Don't email Steve. But you can tweet him. He's at SGGRC on Twitter, and uh, he does read all the tweets, even though he follows no one. Uh, he, they were giving you a hard time this week about that, but he does read all his uh, all his at replies. Uh, you can also get full uh, high-quality audio and video from our site, twit.tv slash SN for security now. But best would be subscribe. That way you'll get it each and every week, and you can do that in any netcast aggregator, you know, in iTunes and all the others. Um uh, Steve, we are done. For the we day. are. Yes. Yes. For one week, we'll be back probably with a Q&A. I know that there's, there's a ton of questions that people had. Uh, we'll go through them, and any that are still unanswered as of the end of this podcast, we will tackle uh, next week. Schneier and, so I, Schneier I and Kaminsky willing, we will be able to do questions. Yes. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. We'll catch you next time on Security. Thanks. Thanks, Leo. Security.